Now, Father, we come to your word and we ask you to awaken our hearts, awaken our minds that we would understand and that we would be able to apply to our lives the truth that you are about to reveal to us. Father, I pray that you would protect us from error and that by your spirit you would be glorified in our obedience to your word. Father, I pray most of all that we would be encouraged by this truth this morning. As we break open the the word of life, may it be bread for us, and may it be rich food for us. And Father, may our hearts be docile to the work of your Spirit now. We pray, Holy Spirit, come and do your work in us, and leave us not unchanged, but changed for the glory of our Savior, for we pray it in his name. Amen. We are in the letter of Paul to the church of Ephesus. And we are beginning the first chapter this week. And I want to begin this morning by drawing your attention to the fact that over the last three decades or so, one of the most deceptive and damaging teachings teachings that's been poisoning both the culture and our church is the gospel of self-esteem. Believed to be one of the most important psychological discoveries of the ages, modern students of human psychology have conclusively determined that at the root of most of man's problems, emotional, spiritual, and other problems, is a debilitating condition called low self-esteem. So the reason we cannot love our spouse the way that God calls us to is because we don't love ourselves enough. And the reason we engage in what's called self-destructive behaviors is because we just don't know who we are. The reason depression is epidemic in the West is because self-esteem problems are so epidemic. If we would just figure out how to solve the self-esteem problem among our children, among our wives and teachers and leaders... We could virtually eradicate crime, most mental illnesses, test scores would almost miraculously rise, marriages would be less likely to fall apart, and generally speaking, the world would be a better and happier place. Unfortunately, while the purveyors of such teaching have been enormously successful in getting the general populace to buy in, to their prescription for curing the ills of of the human condition, almost everything they promised which would get better has actually gotten worse. Violent crime is worse than it's ever been, perhaps in human history. Um, Conditions classified as mental illnesses have multiplied exponentially. Academic test scores in the West have fallen so dramatically that Educators have opted to change the test and make it easier so that scores would go up. Marriages are less likely to survive in our time than perhaps at any time previous to this, and the world has obviously not become a happier and more peaceful place. Clearly, the gospel of self-esteem has turned out to be a false gospel. In fact, it's nothing more than the spiritual snake oil sold by, by the tanker load to the world, a world that's desperate to find a way to solve its problems apart from dependence upon God. But that doesn't stop people from buying it. 
And by no means has it even slowed down the peddlers of the spiritual elixir from selling it even to the church. So that even in our day, we have men like Robert Schuller who teach, quote, a person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. That's from his book, The New Reformation, Self-Esteem. It was also said Jesus knew his worth, his success fed his self-esteem. He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem. He bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem, and the cross will sanctify your ego trip. From his book, Living Positively One Day at a Time. Now, I don't know about you, but where I come from, that's called blasphemy. It's not only blasphemous, it's the epitome of foolishness. Because it has been proven again and again to be a false philosophy that does not deliver on what it's promised. For example, Jeff Baldwin writes, With all of these Americans feeling good about themselves, non-Christians should expect that our high self-esteem would translate into better performance. But a study by Howard Stevenson bursts that bubble. Newsweek magazine explains, quote, American school children rank far ahead of Japan, Taiwan, and China in self-confidence about their abilities in math. Unfortunately, this achievement was marred by the fact that Americans were far behind in their performance in math. In fact, the only area that self-esteem, so says Newsweek magazine, the only area that the self-esteem gospel seems to impact is a little embarrassing for the self-esteem movement. Two studies linked high self-esteem with increased sexual activity by teens. Conclusion, we Americans like ourselves more than ever, but continue to behave badly. The self-esteem gospel is a false gospel, and it needs to be evicted from the church. Anyone who reads their Bible knows intuitively that the philosophy of self-esteem was doomed from the beginning. As the Apostle Paul warned Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, But realize this, Timothy, that in the last days difficult times will come. Why? Because men will be what? Lovers of self. You see, the real problem is not that we love ourselves too little, but that we love ourselves too much, and there's no room left over for God. We are so consumed with thoughts about ourselves, whether we look good to others, whether we seem intelligent, successful, likable, attractive, that it never occurs to us that the solution to our problem is not in ourselves, but in God. As my former professor, Dr. Ken Sorrells, once wrote, the English Puritans of the 1600s would be appalled at the emphasis today on self-esteem. They would regard it as nothing other than a form of self-worship. They would eschew talk of unmet needs, because in their view, the only real need to be met was their need to worship God. And that is why Puritans practiced sanctification by theology rather than psychology. And so to everyone listening to this message this morning who struggles with what the world calls low self-esteem, let me offer you a new prescription for your problem. Instead of thinking about what a sorry person you are, turn your attention to what a glorious person God is. Or as Paul said in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that's where you are, and that's who you are. If you've been raised up with Christ, 
Keep seeking things above where Christ is. Where's that? Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You want to know how to get your mind off your self-esteem problems? Get your mind on the glory of God and realize that when he returns, meditate on the fact that when he is returned in glory, you also will return in glory. You will be glorified. Your glory is bound up in his glory, not in your ability to make yourself pretty or attractive, skinny, Intelligent, creative. This is precisely what Paul is helping us to do in the first 14 verses of his letter to the Ephesians. He understands that there are many practical issues in the believer's life that need to be addressed. Marriage, family, children, employee-employer relationships. I mean, all the practical areas of life he touches on very, very briefly. But did you ever notice, I hope you have because I've pointed it out before, did you ever notice that you can go to the Word of God and look up everything there is to say on marriage and there isn't very much? You never find a place where Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians on marriage. You never find a place where the Apostle Peter wrote a letter to the Philippians on dieting or a proper view of food. Why not? It's never been the focus. God doesn't want you focused there. Because life is bound up not in getting your hands around or getting a handle upon how to be a good husband or how to be a good wife or how to raise your children well. You get your heart and your mind thinking properly about the Lord Jesus Christ, honoring Him, worshiping Him, seeking, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, I think, seeking to discover what is pleasing to the Lord. You get yourself wrapped up in the glory of God. And that other stuff will fall in place. And you'll come to the end of your life and people will start asking you, how did you raise such godly kids? And you'll say, I don't know. I guess I I was just godly. I guess I just focused on imitating Christ. He was gracious. That's where our attention should be. So this is precisely where Paul has us in Ephesians chapter 1. He knows that before we can be adequately handling the practical issues of life in our marriages and in our families, with our children and with our employees, before we can get a handle on that, he works hard at getting our focus off of our sorry, sinful selves and onto the greatness of the glory of God. The fundamental error of the self-esteem gospel is that it points people in exactly the opposite direction of their need. As John Piper writes, and I love this, it's so helpful. We are starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding the self. 
Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being standing on the speck called earth, standing in front of a mirror, trying to find his significance in his own image? It is a great sadness that this is the gospel of the modern world. You want to find significance? Go look in a mirror. Here's the problem with that thinking. In your heart of hearts, you know the truth. And the self-esteem gospel has to confront the truth and deny it. You look into a mirror and you see an inadequate, sinful person. The self-esteem gospel says you're not inadequate and you're not sinful. Love yourself. And you know that's not true. You look in the mirror every day of your life and you can say, you're good. You're getting better every day. You're healthy. You're wealthy. You know, positive thinking. And guess what? Your heart never changes. And once in a while, some circumstance in your life will come around to so move you and break you open that what spills out horrifies you because you realize it's just not true. And all of your friends come around and say, oh, but you need to love yourself. You need to see your worth. Jesus died because you're valuable. That is a misrepresentation of Scripture. It's a misrepresentation. Taking a person who's struggling with their weight or their appearance or their propensity toward lust or anger or power and pointing them to the all-sufficient power of loving himself is not only misguided, it is cruel. It's like pointing a man who's dying of thirst at a large, cool, clear glass of antifreeze. It goes down smooth, but it'll kill you. The purveyors of the self-esteem gospel offer the wrong cure because they start with the wrong diagnosis. In their minds, the problem is a lack of self-esteem, so the cure is to know and love yourself. And the better you know and the better you love yourself, the better off you're going to be. But the Bible takes a different view altogether. According to the Word of God, man's fundamental problem is sin. And the only cure for that is to know and love God. And that's the only true saving gospel. And it's the only cure for all of man's spiritual problems. You say, what about emotional problems? Same thing. There isn't any distinction. You've got an emotional problem, it's a spiritual problem. And that's what Paul offers us when we begin reading this letter in the Ephesians, to the Ephesians. He doesn't offer us philosophy. He doesn't offer us psychology or therapy. He simply points us to God. Notice with me the emphasis of the first 14 verses. You ready for this? And what I want you to see here, and we don't have time to read every verse. Uh, we're going to almost do that before we're done here. But what I want you to see is the absence of any mention of man and the total focus on the person and work of God for your benefit. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God. Verse 3. Blessed be God. Verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him. Verse 5. He predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Verse 5 again. According to the kind intention of His will. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of 
His grace, which He freely bestowed on us. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption, according to the riches of His grace. Verse 8. Which He lavished on us. Verse 9. He, watch this. He made known the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. You see a pattern? Verse 10, the summing up of all things in Christ. Verse 11, in him we also have an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of what? His will. Verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of what? His glory. Verse 13, you were sealed in him, verse 14, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. God is on the move. God is at work. And God has been at work on your behalf since before the creation of the world. All of these verses have exactly the same focus. Paul is trying to get us to see and be overwhelmed by the wonder and beauty and glory of God. Why? Because our only hope of salvation and our only hope of permanent and lasting change in this life is not in learning to love ourselves, but turning entirely away from ourselves and throwing ourselves completely Upon the goodness of God. You cannot study this text with any kind of intellectual honesty and conclude anything other than that Paul believes salvation is all of God. All of God. This is a description of how it happens, where it began, how it occurred in man. What is the promise for the future? Past, present, future. And we're going to see it as we go. You say, yeah, but where does man come in? Man responds to it in faith. How do you reconcile faith with God's choosing and his predestination? Paul doesn't deal with that here. There's an element of mystery here that should just increase our love for the glory of God. Are we responsible? Yes. Is he uh, decisive in moving toward us first? Yes, he is. How do we reconcile it? We don't. We glory in it. We glory in it. That's all Paul's doing. He's just glorying in it. He's not debating. He's not arguing. This is Paul in worship. But I'm getting ahead of myself. You cannot study this text without seeing that salvation is all of God. And Paul not only believed that, He exalted in it. And so did David. We read this morning, Psalm 5. David exalting in God's salvation. These first 14 verses are a stunning example of Paul in worship. Ever wondered what it would be like to sit down and just pray with Paul? You don't have to wonder. Watch here. Read this text. These first 14 verses are really just a stunning example of Paul in worship. It's as if we come up upon Paul just as he's kind of poking his head through the clouds and, and getting a glimpse of heaven, and he starts calling down to us all of the glory of what he sees. 
These first 14 verses constitute kind of a spontaneous doxology to God from the Apostle. It's a deep song of worship that strikes us almost as doctrine set to music. He begins his thoughts in verse 3, and then the more he thinks about the greatness and glory of God and the spiritual riches that he lavishes and pours out upon undeserving sinners like himself, the more enraptured he becomes and by the grandeur of it all, and the more he gropes for words to express what is inexpressible. In fact, if you were to see this in the Greek, it would become apparent that Paul doesn't even bother to take a sentence break. He hardly even takes a breath, and if he does, we don't know where he did. He just carries the whole thing through from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. In men's ministry yesterday, one of the guys said, you know, I'm trying to follow the pronouns here, trying to follow the structure of this sentence, and and it's really confusing. And I, my response was, you're getting it. That's exactly what you need to see. What we need to see here is Paul in prayer. Paul completely enraptured by the glory of God. And once he starts trying to tell us about it, he can't get himself to stop. It reminds me of David Brainerd writing in his journal, talking about times when he would pray on his knees. He's got tuberculosis. He's coughing up blood. He's out in the cold. He's on his knees and he's praying. And he said... I, I prayed with such sweetness in the presence of God that I hardly knew how to stop. I didn't know how to stop. That's Paul. This is not Paul trying to to, uh, dismantle some unbiblical teaching. This is not Paul trying to correct a false doctrine. This is not Paul rebuking anyone for thinking poorly. This is just Paul praising God and praising him, understanding who God is and what God has done almost infinitely better than we do. You want to know why people don't pray like this very often? Because we don't know him like we should. You want to know why you can come to a worship service sometimes? Why I can come to a worship service and sing these tremendous songs about the glory of God and not have my heart moved? It's because we don't understand Him. We don't see the glory in it. Because we don't know Him like we should. We don't pursue a knowledge of Him like we should. Eternal life is bound up in this, Jesus said. Herein is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice with me the first words in this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed here is uh, eulageo, from which we get our English word eulogy which is a message of praise or commendation. It's speaking well of someone so that whenever we have a funeral, someone gives the eulogy. I was giving a funeral one time uh, here at this church, and when I got done, everything, I I talked well of this person, and and we got out to the graveside. One of that person, the the deceased man's friends, came up to me, and he said, Wow, you know, if... If I hadn't checked the address and seen that my friend was actually up in the casket, I would have thought you were talking about somebody completely different. I thought you'd be talking about another man. All we did was focus on his good. What about his bad? We weren't here to do that. 
The glorious thing about God is there is no bad. And if we're not astounded by his goodness, it's simply because we don't know him. The word blessed here is significant because when Paul says blessed be God, he's not exhorting us to bless God as if we could give him anything of any significance that he needs and does not have. Rather, he is saying, let me tell you how wonderful and glorious God is. Blessed be God. This is pure worship. This is pure worship. Paul is inviting us to join him in worship. Why? Because this is where it all begins, folks. This is where it all begins. This is where everything we need can be found. When we come to the realization that we have a need, whether it's a need for saving grace or a need for sanctifying grace in all of its forms, a need of wisdom or peace or any other physical or spiritual need, the first thing we should do is worship. You say, I thought the first thing we should do is pray. Guess what? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. Worship. The first thing you do is you go to God and you recognize and you delight and you cling to all that He is. Because that's your only hope. It's our only hope. And so this is, this is what we do in worship. We declare to our own souls the unspeakable worth of God. I don't know about you, but I find myself doing this a lot. And I find the more that I grow in grace, the more that I do this. And the more problems I face, the more struggles in life that I face of every kind, the more I find my wife and I doing this together. God, I praise you. That the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. God, I need your safety. You just walk your way through the Psalms and pray. The Lord is my rock and my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Everything that God, everything that you need, God has provided. And he is revealed in his word. The problem is we get the cart before the horse. We see our problem and we start focusing on the problem, the problem, the problem, the problem, the problem. And we don't realize that by focusing on the problem, we sabotage the very solution that we desire. Rather, we are called to focus on God. Set your mind on these things. There are at least three things we need to worship God for. I'm going to be able to tell you one and start a second. And before we're done next week, there may be a fourth. What do we need to worship God for? I know you don't have an outline, but if you're taking notes, point number one. Hey, we finally got to it. Point number one, worship God for who he is. Worship him for who he is. Who is God? Paul tells us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who He is. 
He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just the creator of the world who kind of wound things up in the beginning and then walked away. No, he's the God who is intimately concerned about my eternal well-being and sent his only son to pay the only price that could exonerate me from my guilt. That's who he is. Who is God? He's not just some tribal deity who demands obedience and sacrifice, who is quick to judge and impossible to please. Most of the world worships that God. That is not this God. No, he is the God who loved, loved a world of sinners so much that he emptied himself of all of his privileges, of all of his honors, and the glory of heaven, and became one of us so that we might have life through him. Who is God? He's not just some distant deity who is watching us from a distance but a God who is near, a God who can sympathize with our every weakness, who was tempted in every way just as we are and yet never sinned, so that his perfect human righteousness might be credited to our account in order to cancel our eternal debt. That's who God is. Who is God? God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in a pluralistic society, Christian, you need to know something. When God says, I am the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is what distinguishes him from all the other so-called gods. To say that he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is to define himself in the narrowest of terms so that all would know that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. By the way, Jesus' very name means, do you know? Yeshua, Jehovah, saves. That's this God. This is the God that Paul worships. This is the God that Paul invites us to worship. And I submit to you that all the other issues of life can only be adequately addressed in the context of this kind of true worship of the only true living God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ through a book. And so Paul begins his personal doxology by declaring, Blessed be God! Praise his name! Because you have made yourself known to us. You have revealed yourself in the person of Christ, as John wrote we have seen your glory, the only, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen it. And we've not only seen it, but we delight in it. We love what we have seen. You've revealed yourself. So that's how Paul begins. You say, why is that relevant? It's relevant because we rush off to chapters 4, 5, and 6 to find out how to rescue a drowning marriage, how to, how to uh, rein in a, a wayward child, uh, how do we, how do we uh, deal with our own immoral tendencies. And Paul says implicitly, don't start there, start here. Don't start with the problem. There's no solution in the problem by definition. The problem is not the solution. God is the solution. Start with Him. 
We've not only seen him, but we delight in what he's seen, what we have seen. And so worshiping God starts, number one, with worshiping God for who he is, but number two, worshiping God for what he's done. And we're only going to be able to get started in this. But this is where it really gets rich. Paul says, God, we bless you, not only because of who you've revealed yourself to be, but for what you have done for us, though we be undeserving. And what has he done? Paul says, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what he's done for us. And everything else I had to say is explanation of that. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice the play on the words here. It's just as visible in the Greek as it is here in the English. Blessed be God who has blessed us with every blessing. In other words, we bless God because he first blessed us. He's the initiator. He's the one who moved first to bless us long before we ever responded in blessing back to him. This is crucial to our understanding of Paul's meaning here. Paul's trying to get our hearts engaged in the fact that all the goodness we receive from God is not something in response to some favor that we did for him. All the blessing that we receive from God is not somehow uh, paybacks for our accepting him. It's not a prize for good behavior. None of those things. No, God is the one who initiates the whole thing. He's the one who moved first. As 1 John 4.19 says, We love him because he first loved us. He is the initiator. We are the responder. His work is decisive. Do we have a work? Yes. But it is dependent. It is a dependent work. Listen, folks, having, a healthy, having healthy thoughts about yourself begins with gaining a proper understanding of God. That's because we don't define ourselves. And the scholars and philosophers of our world do not define ourselves. They try, but they define us wrongly. Rather, we are defined by God. Who we are is determined by who God is. He created us for a purpose that is full of depth and meaning and tremendous value to him. And he wants us to know who we are and delight in who we are. But that knowledge begins by knowing who He is. It's the same kind of thing. We don't solve the problem, find the solution to the problem in the problem. We find the solution to our spiritual problems in God. You say, well, my problem is I don't love myself. No, that's not a problem. That's a flag coming out of your heart saying there is a problem here, but your problem is not that you love yourself too little. Your problem is that you love God too little. And it may just be that you don't understand Him. It may just be that you focus so much on yourself that you don't know hardly anything about God. 
you're snorkeling around on the top of an infinitely deep ocean, and you're saying, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why does everybody talk about this glorious person? I mean, I understand salvation, and I understand that he died for me, and if I accept Jesus into my heart, I get to go to heaven. I understand that. I mean, is there, is there something else? Good night. It's like looking at the moon and saying, could there be anything else in the universe? There's a universe in the universe. There's a myriad of planets and galaxies. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. But worshiping Him begins by exploring everything that we can find about God. I tell you, you point me to a person who knows God, and I won't even have to know his name or speak to him. And I'll tell you a person who has no struggle with their self-esteem. Because they are enraptured by who God is. And they are not worried any longer about their own personal inadequacies. Because that's not life. We are defined by God. And God wants us to know who we are and delight in who we are. But that knowledge begins by knowing who he is. One of the reasons self-esteem gospel seems so compelling in all of our experience is because it feels like human beings are the primary actors in the stage of history. I mean, it's all about us, right? Human history is about humans, right? Paul's doxology asserts that it is not man who is the primary actor in history, but rather God himself. He is the one who created the drama. He is the director of every scene. He is the lead character in every plot and every subplot. And in the end, he gets all the applause. And the reason so many people despair over the fact that they just can't find themselves. Have you ever heard that? It's, I just got to get away. I got to go find myself. Where are you going to go? Back in the 60s, people left America and they went to India to find some swami who would reveal to them the secrets of the universe so that they could discover who I am. Who am I? I'm going to find themselves. And the reason so many people despair over the fact that they can't find themselves is that all their lives they've been looking in the wrong place. You don't find yourself by picking up and going to India. You don't find yourself by leaving home to pursue various challenges, pleasures, and, and esoteric experiences. You don't even find yourself by looking inward, gazing at your navel until some spiritual light comes on, will never reveal to you yourself. You never find yourself by looking inward because you don't define who you are. No, the only place you can find yourself and discover who you are and what you were created to be is deep in the heart of the blessed, eternal God. So quit looking at yourself. Quit looking in the mirror. Get rid of that thing. If you're trying to find your significance in your weight or your appearance or your skill or your talent or your power, you get a false God. 
You don't have to dig too deep either into the knowledge of God to discover yourself there. This is not something for theologians. This is for anyone who can read the Bible, anyone who can hear a sermon. You don't have to look very deep. If you're a genuine child of God, you find yourself in one perfect and eternally glorious place. You know where that is? In Christ. And if you belong to God, you don't even need to hear it. You don't even need to see it. His Spirit testifies to your spirit that you're a child of God. That's who you are. You don't need to leave your prayer closet. You don't need to get up from the kitchen table. You don't need to travel across the world. All you need to do is travel across the room, pick up the Word of God and read it. And you'll find yourself there. John MacArthur writes, the only way a person can achieve a true sense of self-worth, meaning, and significance is to have a right relationship to his creator. A person without Christ has no spiritual value, no standing before God, no purpose or meaning in this world. As the psalmist said, he is like chaff which the wind drives away. Is it any wonder he's confused? Any wonder he's confused? Any wonder he's despairing? I regularly hear people who claim to be Christians complain that they or someone they love has a low self-esteem. And you know what my first thought is? That person doesn't have a low self-esteem. That person needs to learn about God. They don't need to learn more about themselves. They need to learn more about God. They're not thinking of themselves properly because they are not thinking about God properly. Because they have visions of God that are not consistent with the truth or not a full expression of the truth, if they only knew and loved the blessed nature and character of God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, they would be overwhelmed by His infinite grace and His unmerited kindness toward them, so that their thoughts would no longer be consumed by their inadequacies, but rather in the awesome mercy and provision of God for them. an amazing truth. God does not want us to be ignorant about who we are. God doesn't want us to be debilitated by irrational thoughts of our inadequacies. Debilitating thoughts. He wants us to be enraptured by the glory of Christ. This is the same author who said, Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord. You see the object? Not in yourself. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. And again I say, rejoice. That's what Paul wants us to do. He's pointing us to the glory of God. He's not arguing some theological point. He's not in a, in a conflict with anyone. He's just saying, join me. Join me. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about family. But first, join me. Come up here. Quit wallowing around in the mud. Come up here. And join me in seeing and glorying in and savoring the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever and who lives for you, ever making intercession for you, 
providing for you everything you need in Christ. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your heart fixed on God. The author of Hebrews says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Listen, folks. You will become what you behold. And you will either become like the Lord Jesus because your eyes are fixed on Him. You think Jesus had a self-esteem problem? Never. Why? Well, first of all, He wasn't sinful. You think Paul had a self-esteem problem? I don't find it anywhere in the text. I find Paul deprecating himself more than you ever have. More than I ever have. And yet he said, this one thing I do, forgetting everything that lies behind, I press on toward the prize. And there isn't anything in life that can squash me down. We are perplexed. But we are not in despair. We are beaten, but we are not crushed. There's no way you can take me down. Because I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is fully capable of keeping everything that I've entrusted to him against that day. And we're going to have to pick up on this next week. But let me wrap all of this up by saying that Paul wants us to see here is that incredible as it sounds, God is for us. God is for us. Let me say it another way. God is for us. And so Paul says, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If you genuinely love the Lord Jesus Christ, God is for you. So no matter what it is that you need, no matter what it is that you carry in this life, God has provided everything you need to magnify his glory and to maximize your joy. It's all yours for the asking. Because God, as we said last week, God now sees you differently. He's no longer against you. You are no longer a child of wrath, Ephesians 2. You now belong to him. And he has inextricably united you to his son. Say, how much does he love me? He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Now, you want to set your mind on something today? You think about that. You pray through that. You meditate on that. Ponder that. And I guarantee you, you'll be able to come away understanding why Paul commanded you to rejoice in him.